Let's take our Bibles. We're looking to Acts chapter 9 today. We're in this little series of the gospel, speaking of the gospel harvest and pointing to great examples of that throughout the text. By the way, men tonight at the Forge, dinner beginning at 5.30, our service at 6.30, you'll hear the gospel communicated through a couple of testimonies, what God has done in the lives of a couple of our men, and you'll want to be here to be part of that. Uh, tonight, uh, you can still connect into that. It'll help us if you will see the uh, ad there in our handout. You'll see you can text the word FORGE to our uh, church number, 256-442-3550. Just text the word FORGE, and that will get you registered for tonight. We look forward to seeing you. Acts chapter 9, we want to begin in verse 1 and go through 18 verses. This is a narrative that is probably familiar to you if you've been a student of the Bible for a while. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone, anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered that, the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized. I've got two points that I want to share with you today. Just two simple points. And the first is this, that everyone is within reach of God's gracious touch. Everyone. We need not discount anyone for everybody is within reach of God's gracious touch. 
Now, it would be hard for us to come up with somebody in our mind, a person that was more callous and more wicked than Saul of Tarsus. Hateful prejudice filled that man to the point that the scripture says that he constantly, as he's breathing, he's constantly railing out threats and murderous intentions about those who are following Jesus Christ the way. Saul sought to incarcerate and kill people simply because their faith differed from his own. And moreover, he seemed to enjoy the brutal force which he hunted down Christians attempting to crush the movement of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, much of the early church Christians were concentrated in Jerusalem until a great persecution took place and they were scattered around the neighboring regions. And one of those places that some of them were scattered to, in fact, a good number of them were scattered to, was the capital city of Syria called Damascus. It's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem, which would be at least a six-day journey if you're traveling by foot. Once followers of Christ fanned out from Jerusalem into those other places, Saul did the same thing. So with letters of permission given to him by the high priest to go into those areas, authorizing him to arrest any Christian he finds in and amongst the synagogues, then he would bring them back to Jerusalem. He would incarcerate them. So he and his militant group of thugs went out to bring them back. He desired to kill Christianity, even if it meant imprisoning and killing Christians. His strategy was actually pretty simple, and it's a strategy that is used around the world today for religious groups of people that are fanatical, given to evil and wicked intent. That is, be the most fierce and ruthless as necessary to cause others to be able to walk away from their beliefs. He doesn't have to kill all Christians. He just has to kill enough of them with such brutality that others would say, I want no part of that. And they would willy, willingly walk away from Christ. But yet he had no idea the power and the hope that people had who had been transformed by Jesus Christ. He's coming up against a force of people that uh, are empowered supernaturally. He just doesn't get that quite yet. So later he describes this attitude and behavior that he had going on. He described it to Agrippa. If you remember at the uh, sort of towards the conclusion of Acts in Acts 26, he says this, describing himself as convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues. By the way, that means if you were expelled from a synagogue, you were literally taken outside the synagogue and beaten with rods so that everybody would know you ought not behave and believe like this one. And so he expels them and he punishes them. He removes them from the synagogues and he tried to make them blaspheme. That is to blaspheme the name of Jesus 
And in raging fury, he says, he was against them. He persecuted them even into the foreign cities. So he's talking about those moments like this when he is moving towards Damascus to bring his, the weight of his criticism against Christ. So nearing Damascus, Saul was more resolved than ever to crush this movement of the way by any means necessary. But little did he know the force of Christ was about to crumble him. Little did he know that God's glory would flatten him. Here's the haughtiest of men that was going to be absolutely humbled by Jesus Christ in his glorious presence. This arrogant blowhard would actually be changed in heart and in silence he would live in his darkness. And it would stay that way for three days. Seeing the glory of Christ, he falls to the ground. And Saul hears that trumpeting sound of the voice of Jesus himself. And in a way of redundant emphasis, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I like his response because it's simple, straightforward. Who are you, Lord? He's not using Lord in a sense that he would later come to use Lord. But in the modern vernacular, it would be something like this. Who are you, sir? Who are you? And Jesus reveals himself. And these seven words become the most transformative words that Paul will ever hear. It is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Saul was utterly helpless in this moment. He suddenly realized his rejection of Christ. He realized in this moment the rebellion that he had against the word of Christ and the horrendous sin that he brought against the people of Christ. In an instant, God's glory revealed to him his own sin. And in that moment, everything is now making sense. And the weight of his rebellious, sinful, arrogant, abusive ways is all before him. He recognizes when he sees the holy glory of Christ and hears his words, I am Jesus, he recognizes everything in his life that he's been moving towards has been absolutely wrong. With astounding clarity, Saul suddenly recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And Jesus is alive and he is glorious. And the gospel message is true. And he has been fighting against the king of the universe. And when you realize that, you're absolutely hopeless. What can you do? What can you do to alter anything that you've ever done against this great king of the universe? What can you do to change the course of your past life as you stand before the judge of all people, living and dead? You must have thought that death was imminent, for the wages of sin is death. Perhaps he believed that the ground might open up and in that moment swallow him, consume him, and put him right through to the passage of eternal torment in hell. I don't know what was going on in his mind, but I know it was mind-blowing. All the clarity of God now making sense to him. 
Can you imagine the realities that engulfed Saul in that moment as he heard the thunderous words of Jesus' voice, I am Jesus. Can you imagine what he experienced in that moment? Those seven words are, I think, the most revealing that Saul ever heard in his life. And yet the two words that follow are really what challenged me as I was reading through this passage multiple times this week. I know I've read them and I know I've contemplated them, but they, they have never had the weight like they've had this week for me. But rise. I mean, I am Jesus. That, that's big news, right? The fact that he now discovers that everything he had been trying to crush was very much alive and doing well, gloriously well. The fact that he would recognize that surely he would die and he would spend eternal separation from God. Sure, he recognized that and the weightedness of that. And the fact that he could no longer see, he could no longer move and bow on his own, he could no longer do what he had hoped to do. All of that was changing. The weight of that significant, but the two words that would revolutionize him is but rise. But rise. Because in that moment when he's cast to the ground, in that moment groping in darkness where he recognizes this must be the way that I am going to be repaid for all my sins, in that moment he recognizes but rise means he is not going to have to pay for that sin, but Christ Jesus had paid for that sin for him. So but rise Rise to a new way of life. Rise to a new beginning. Rise to this transformed life that Christ was providing. For Jesus had paid the debt. So rise and go. Listen for the instructions. Oh, too many people misunderstand the gospel. They think in the recognition of Christ and the recognition of their own sin that somehow, some way, they're going to have to be repaying him for that but my friends Christ has already paid the debt load Christ has already paid for all of our sin if we'll but trust him receive him and be willing to walk in his spirit to a new way of life so let this first point sort of settle in because everyone is in reach of God's gracious touch everyone for Christ has come and paid the debt for everyone He died for all. So if you've given up on God saving somebody specifically, let Saul's life and testimony reset your thoughts about that. That person is not outside of God's touch. They they don't extend beyond where God's grace is extending. Some of you may have thought that some people are just unreachable. But let this passage reset your belief. That Christ can reach everybody. If Christ can reach Saul of Tarsus, he can reach anyone. And some of you may have assumed that you might be too far from God's touch. But let the realities of this passage settle in. You are not too far from God's gracious touch. And he is reaching out to you today. Whether you're in this room, watching online, listening on the radio, or hearing us on a podcast. 
God's gracious touch is reaching out to you. Now, we can be confident in that because the Scripture gives us some certainties, some real assurances about God's gracious touch. And that is first that Jesus saves. Christ has come to save sinners. Christ has not come to judge you yet. The judgment of God is already upon you if you're rejecting him. But Christ has come to save sinners. In fact, he came into the world to save sinners. And that Christ himself is always the initiator of this transformation. It's not about you initiating. It's not about somebody else initiating. It's about Christ initiating this transformation. He was initiating it in Paul's life or Saul's life, and he's initiating it in yours as well. The Lord said to Saul that he would be his chosen instrument to carry his name. Chosen. Can you imagine that? God had chose Saul in the midst of his wicked, sinful, rebellious life. He's a chosen instrument. Why? Because Christ is the initiator. Saul didn't have to get his life together in order for Christ to initiate his love relationship with him. No, God had already chosen him. And so Saul, you are my chosen instrument. Saul uh, would later proclaim as he's writing a blessing about God the Father saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before any of us were born, before the foundation of the world, God had already chosen us and he called us according to his good purposes. So God is always the initiator. So Christ has come to save. Christ has come initiating the salvation. And good news for us, he is always at work. He's not taking a day off. He's not slumbering. He's not apathetic. Christ is always at work, and the work of Christ is to save sinners. And he is long-suffering, saying that he wishes that none would perish, those are the certainties we have about Christ and many, many more. So again, God's gracious touch is being extended. And there's not a person that is outside God's reach. Now, here's the second point. What I really wanted you to understand as well is that Christ commissions and empowers every Christian with the gospel message. Christ commissions every one of us, and he empowers every one of us with the gospel message. Now, we marvel at God's saving grace in Saul's life and his sustaining grace as well in Ananias' life. So there's two graces that are exposed here. It's the same grace, really, but applied in two different ways. One is a saving grace that's being extended to Saul, and the other is a sustaining grace empowering Ananias to fulfill the commission that God has for him to go and communicate to Saul and to minister to him. Now let's think about Ananias for a minute. We don't know much about him. Uh, later in Acts, Paul is going to recount his conversion experience as he's talking to a crowd there in Jerusalem in Acts 22. He, he talks about Ananias saying that he was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of of all the Jews who lived in Damascus. You know what that makes him? 
that makes him a church leader. And if he's a church leader, that makes him a target for Saul as he's on his way to Damascus among the church there. And who do you think he's going to go after? He's going to go after those leaders. He wants to make an example of them. He wants to get them out of the synagogues and whip them. He wants to chain them and bring them back to Jerusalem. He wants to imprison some of them. And even some he will want to have killed, execute. So that everybody else would know not to go in this way of Jesus Christ. So Ananias is a leader of this capital city church, one of Saul's targets, and he is overwhelmed, obviously, with God's call for him to be the one to go and talk to Saul of Tarsus, to minister to him. So Ananias and the other Syrian Christians knew that Saul was brutal, and he was calculated in his murderous persecution. And he was coming with authority to take any of them who had faith in Jesus Christ. So the tensions are high, obviously so. And every Christian was on red alert. And during the crisis, in that moment where everybody is tense, knowing that Saul is coming and what he has already done in Jerusalem, he's now bringing to Damascus. In that moment, God gives Ananias a vision. Let's go back and repeat those words. The Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Now, I know we don't have time to go into this much, but anytime you hear a follower of God, one who is a servant of God, say, here I am, Lord, that's an indicator that whatever you're about to ask of me, the answer is going to be yes. I'm presenting myself. Here I am. Whatever it is that you have of me, here I am, Lord. Now, Lord here is different from the way Saul was using it. Lord here, Kyrios is the master. Ananias is reckoning, I'm your servant. You are my master. Here I am. I'm presenting myself, whatever it is that you have for me. That's the attitude that you and I ought to have. You say, well, I, I don't really have that. Ask God's spirit to help develop that attitude in you. That's a sustaining grace and faith that he will work within us, in our hearts. Be encouraged by that. So I'm not sure about all this gospel messaging and declaring and witnessing and all that. How about start with that attitude of, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I don't know what you're going to ask of me, but I trust you. I don't know what you're going to want me to do, but I believe you'll empower me to do it. Here I am, Lord, I'm your servant. The Lord said to him in this vision, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I can just visualize this in my Minds, imagination. Can't you? Can't you hear the conversation flow? Rise. Yes, sir. And I want you to go to a certain street. Okay. Okay, I will. And I want you to go to the house of Judas. Yes, Lord. And I want you to look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now, wait, 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 Lord. I've heard about this guy. 
down in Jerusalem and all that he's done there. I've heard about how Stephen was stoned and he was right there looking on and holding all the gear, the people that were doing the stoning, giving his affirmation. I know about this man, Lord. He's, he's done great evil against your saints. And, and you can hear the implication that Ananias is giving. And he wants to do it to me too. And all those things are true. But Ananias didn't have God's knowledge and he didn't have God's perspective until God revealed it to him. And then once he understood God's involvement, he set aside all what other people had told him about Saul and he shook off the fear that he had of the man and he changed his viewpoint because the one who was telling him to go would empower him to do so. And he trusted God over his own feelings. He trusted the word of God over the words of other people. Now, on the way to Damascus, God had reset everything about Saul, hadn't he? I mean, everything about his life, God had pushed the reset button through Christ and his shed blood and death and burial and resurrection. And now he was offering to Saul this reset of a new life in the spirit with a new purpose. And he was offering to Ananias a different view of Saul. And so he said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine. So the prior view is that here is a murderous, purposeful bigot who brings death and destruction to all saints. And once God declared the right view from his his perspective, it is he is a chosen instrument of mine. That view Ananias need to take in. You see, once God gives us a vision, a view about what he sees in other people, it will transform the way we interact with them. You might see somebody who the Spirit of God is prompting you to communicate the gospel to. You might see them for all the rejection or all the sin or all the hardness in them, maybe even the persecution against you and others. You might see them in that way. But if you'll ask God, it could be that God will allow you to see them the way he is viewing them. And God is viewing them, if his spirit is calling you to speak to them, God is viewing them as a chosen instrument of his. And once you get that view, you'll move towards that individual. Once you begin to see people as God sees them, you'll change your attitude towards them. And you'll be less resistant to be obedient to God's call and commission to you. To his credit, Ananias obeys, and he enters the house with the sustaining grace of God and the courage to face one of the greatest fears that he ever had, trusting God more than he trusted his own feelings. And with God's spirit filling him, he reached out and touched Saul And the Bible says something like scales fell off his eyes and Saul could see and he was immediately filled with the Spirit of God. In that moment, we get a glimpse of a parallel. We see what had been going on physically in his eyes, not able to see, blinded. We see those scales falling off in the same way his spirit 
was transformed. And now everything that he was blind to, he was suddenly seeing. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Messiah spoken of by the prophets. Jesus Christ is the one who saves sinners. And he's seeing that clearly now. In his obedience to Christ, Ananias was the first to witness this really substantial transformation, one of the most substantial transformations of all time, to see the, the Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor, become the great proclamator of the gospel. I think what encourages me about Ananias is that he is a little-known hero of the faith. Other than Paul mentioning him once in his testimony, the Bible does not mention him again, yet he has such tremendous impact on the kingdom of Christ. Because Saul, as you later hear, will be named Paul, a, a Gentile way of expressing his name, and he is going to become the great proclamator of the gospel to Gentiles, and he will be the one to go into Rome and proclaim it to kings, and he will be the one to speak it among his own people, the Jewish people. And he will write a good portion of the New Testament. And you and I probably have been saved because of the ministry that has come all the way down the line from Ananias. And so we're grateful for that little known hero of faith who stepped up and did what God called him to do, commissioning him to the gospel, to a man that others thought would never receive Christ. But Ananias believed that God's gracious reach was greater than where Saul was. And Ananias believed that he was commissioned by God to communicate the gospel. So since the first century, you and I and countless others have come to know Christ because of this unknown man named Ananias. And throughout the ages, there, there have been many heroes of the faith just like him. We're grateful for the gospel-sharing Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimbrell, who led D.L. Moody to faith in Jesus Christ. You probably have heard of Moody. It was under Moody's ministry that Wilburn Chapman came to be a Presbyterian evangelist, saved and proclaimed the gospel. And then God used the preaching of Chapman to save Billy Sunday, who the Spirit of God used to bring Mordecai Ham to faith in Jesus Christ. And Mordecai Ham is the one who communicated the gospel to Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, God has used to save millions of people. And it all trails back to one Sunday school teacher who believed that God had commissioned him, as well as every other Christian, to proclaim his good news. I dare say none of us are going to be well-known evangelists. Probably all of us will be like an Ananias, not mentioned by many people. But my friends, we have no idea how God is going to use the instruments he's called. You and I have been called. And as we communicate the gospel, it could be that God will use those people in incredible links for his kingdom if we'll just but share with them. You and I can be the Ananias, bringing God's gospel good news to other people 
and seeing him use that in a transformative way throughout our area and around the world. You know, we all are the same. All people are living in the same condition in our sin and brokenness. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says it pretty bluntly, doesn't it? For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not anybody that hasn't sinned. But as I just mentioned, there's good news in that God's gracious touch extends to all sinners. His gospel is to be communicated to all people. So if you just follow through this acronym CROSS, the condition is the same. We are sinners under God's judgment, certain to experience death. But Christ has come as our rescuer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever should believe in him would not perish. You don't have to perish. But can have eternal life. Jesus is our rescuer. And Jesus is the rescuer because he is the one who has overcome. He overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame the grave. And he shares that victory with us. In fact, you know Christ died in order that our sins could be paid for. Christ died in, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So that we might be saved for whoever confesses with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believes in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That person will be saved. Nobody is out of reach from God's great touch. If they'll receive Christ as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. And it's not just about saving you for eternity. It's about saving you and helping you right now to begin to live in a new way of life. He'll set you apart to that new life. For we were buried therefore with him in baptism, into death, in order that just as God in his glory raised Christ from the dead, you and I too might walk in newness of life. That's God's glorious message for every one of us. Now, if you've yet to receive that, I pray you will. And if you have received that, then you and I are called to communicate that glorious message. The good news that Christ has come that the condition of all sinners is the same. That Jesus is our rescuer, he alone. That he is the only one who has overcome sin, death, and the grave. That he alone is our salvation. And that he alone sets us apart to new life by his spirit. Communicate those truths and see what God will do. Now let's pray together. Lord, we bless you for the gospel message. We bless you for the Spirit's work to bring the gospel to us. We bless you for the moment that you arrested us in our sin and brought transformation, making it that our sin had been paid for and the righteousness of Christ extended to us. And now the Spirit dwells within us who have called upon you by faith and trust, surrendering our lives. But some... In this room have yet to do that. Some listening right now to my voice have yet to do that. And today, today you have gloriously arrested them.
And Lord, they see their blindness. They understand it as you have revealed truth to them. And I pray, Lord, that they would humble themselves. They would submit themselves to you, surrender all things to you, renounce their sin, confess themselves as sinners, and come into the new way of life in Jesus Christ by the power of your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that would bring great glory to our Savior.